Welcome to Series 3 of the Tim Hill Podcast. In the last two series, I have told you about my life. I have met many interesting people along the way who have become my friends. And what they have in common is they all have fascinating stories of their own, which they are happy to share with you now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this episode. This episode is going to be all about my mate Bill. Bill worked for the Met Police as a firearms officer in London. He has a fascinating story to tell. This is going to be a two-part series. This is part one. Part two will be the next episode. So sit back and enjoy. Okay, Bill, it's all over to you now. You can tell us where and when you were born and what it was like where you grew up. Yep, hi Tim, how you doing? Yeah, my name's Bill Rowlands. Some people know me as Will, Will Rowlands. I was born William Kelly, um, so my father's surname. 22nd of September 1980, Hammersmith in London. I believe it was Queen Charlotte's Hospital, same place as Prince William was born, which is now a block of flats. From the age of... We lived in, I think it was West Drayton in um, Uxbridge uh, in my initial years. Um, My parents separated when I was a toddler, so from the age of two... Uh, I've lived in Portsmouth. Um, initially, we had various places we lived in. We lived in Drayton, Fratton. Uh, Fratton is when I first went to school. I went to a school called Penhow First School, which I think is called Penhow Primary School now, and then went on to Newbridge Middle School in North End. But about halfway through middle school, we moved back to Drayton, and I went to a school called Court Lane Middle School. And then, which then led on to senior school at Springfield in Drayton. And as luck would have it, the summer holidays from transferring from middle to senior school, we moved yet again to the sunny posh end of Cosham called Wimmering, or was Northwest Cosham, as we like to call it, <laughs> um, right next to QA Hospital. So I went from needing to cross the road in Drayton to school to a mile and a half bike ride, which I was really impressed with at the time, as you can imagine. Finished my time at senior school and went on to South Downs College uh, up in Waterlooville, Purbricky area, and did some A-levels at college. I did law and criminology, public services, and performing arts as a side. Uh, the performing arts, if I'm honest, at the time was because there was much more girls in that class than there were in my law, criminology, public services class. <laughs> um, but whilst I was at school, in my school years, I became an, I was an army cadet um, when I was 13, up to the age of 17, and then I moved over and joined the TA, now Army Reserves. And then I was seconded back as an instructor to the ACF, uh, where I taught adult instructors to become adult instructors. Yeah, and then I did my own bits and bobs with the TA. So when I was at college, by the time I'd got to college for the public services element of things, I had almost passed most of it anyway because I'd obtained different certifications throughout my time with the military stuff, which enabled me to do more courses, which was good because I had a, I always liked TV and film growing up. I always liked the idea of you know, being an action hero, type actor type person, you know. But obviously that was a fairy tale dream, so it was just like a 
an extra. But from a very young age, I, um, for some reason, wanted to be a police officer. My mum will always tell a story to anyone that will listen, that when I was about three, walking down the road with a, a police car went past with blue lights on. I'd never seen it before. Apparently, I looked at her and said, Mummy, what was that? And she said, that was a policeman going to get the naughty people. And apparently, I, in awe, said, wow, I'm going to do that. And it stuck with me. So the logical me, as I got older, was I'd have to get a real job. You know, TV and film is not for me, not for a boy in Portsmouth. So concentrate. The army, a lot of my friends joined the regular army. I did consider it, but I always had that niggling for the police more. I don't know why. In hindsight, I wish I did the other first. So yeah, I, I finished college. I had a job at QA Hospital doing security, doing security at the hospital for a few years. And in between times at the hospital, because well, we did 12 hour shifts, I got four on, four off. I did security work. I managed to get some security jobs uh, for celebrities, but then I, I applied for the police and I got accepted. They made me resign from the TA. They told me you couldn't do both. Again, at the time, that's I believed them. Turns out that was a lie. I could have stayed. Uh, so I had to sign my, um, my life away to the police. By the time I was 20, almost 21, I'd started at the Metropolitan Police in London and I lived at the Police Academy place for six months, uh, the Peel Centre in Hendon. Oh, that was Hendon, yeah. was it? So is that the right next to the RAF yes, Museum? Yes, it's on Aerodrome Road, yeah. Dead opposite. But the RAF Museum, I believe, now is a block of flats as well. Or well, they've done something to it. Yeah, they, was, they, were, they were starting to... A few years ago, I had to go back there for a, a training day or something. And um, yeah, it was all regenerated, sadly, really. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got to my career, really, from the age of 20. And here I am, 40 years old. And what, what was the training like at Hendon at that time? Very military-like. I think it was on the cresp of the political correctness coming in over the old ways. We, we would have to parade in the morning, like you would in the military, at six o'clock on parade, boots polished, you know, shirt ironed, the whole lot, you know, inspection, full, full inspection before breakfast. Some of the um, drill instructors that we had were ex-military, uh, retired sergeant majors, so they, you know, I was kind of, for me, it felt kind of normal. It was what I expected it to be. But a lot of people were very shocked to be spoken to in that way. And a lot of people did struggle, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny because it's not hard, is it? Have a wash, get dressed, have a shave. Make a bed block. <laughs> Stand still. You know, it's not hard, is it? But um, the reward was breakfast. And if you didn't, if you didn't pass, you got your show parade. You're late for breakfast. You don't want to be late for breakfast because you've got the scraps. It took a lot of people some time to grasp that concept. There were some ex-squaddies there too, so that they, they did well. Um, so it was a lot of drill. We did a lot of drill uh, marching for, for, for the entire time. You had to march everywhere you went. It was very much like an army camp, albeit classroom-based and civilian. Um, but I guess um, on your passing out parade, they, they brought in one of the... Uh one of the guards bands, was it? Yeah, we had... I can't remember who they were. I've got the VHS of it, actually, but I can't play it anymore. But it was it was a military band, and they, they were absolutely brilliant because we had, obviously, a week or two before rehearsals, and the military band came. And I think my intake at the time was the largest intake they'd ever had in history because it was the end of a... I always joke and say the only reason I got in was because um, it, it was the end of the 30 years from the last major recruitment drive, so they were su super desperate. So we had like 300 p people joining um, at the same time, and that intake alone 
I, I remember throughout the course, it was six months, that um, a few of us would joke, you know the film Police Academy? It's just misfits. And and people you think, how on earth are you here? Like, you're never going to pass, you know? There's just people with maturity or, or lack of life experience at that point as well, but you would, you looked at them and thought, you are never going to pass. You, there's like, you lack common sense in many things, you know? Um, but it was just so funny, you know? The things, the things that looking back it's we we used to joke to each other that we were like the police academy and i think the military band when they saw us in our rehearsals they picked up on that and on the final rehearsal as we did the march around the square for the march off and the salute to whoever the um, reviewing officer would be that day and as we leave the parade square the band were playing like a police a traditional like orchestral song and it switched to the police academy song and they, and we all just stopped mar- marching we all just laughed it, it all crumbled away the sergeant major guy went absolutely crazy at the band but the band looked at us and you, they were laughing and they knew that we knew that they knew that it was just like a you know it's just it was just a funny bunch of people you know and um they yeah. were they that, that's sorry so that sounds a bit like the band of the Irish Guards. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I can't remember who they were, but it was just so good. It was so funny because they, they got a mega, 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 mega bollocking. And um, they were banned. Like On the day, there was m- strict instructions that they are not to do that tune because obviously the, the police senior management didn't like it and it would ruin the show. You know, It was a big, big show for family and stuff to turning up and... I think we were rumoured we might have got the Queen coming. Uh, we didn't. And uh, I think I think it's because the Queen Mother had recently died as well, so that changed. But we were told before the parade, if the military play that song, you are not to laugh, you are not. You are to ignore it. <laughs> so we were all secretly hoping that it, they would do it, but they never did. I was, I was really disappointed, but fortunately it went off you know, without a hitch and uh, that was the passing out parade. But um, yeah, that was good. That was, that was a really... I do often... If I ever think about Hendon, I always remember the band and the and the song. Okay, so how did your career progress from there once you passed out of Hendon? For the next 18 months, you're on probation. So you can mess up and kind of get away with it, unless you particularly mess up, you know. So I was posted to uh, an emergency response team in central London, uh, West End Central Police Station. We, Savile Row, uh, we covered Soho, Mayfair, Chinatown, so down at Savile Road, did you get your suits made down there? <laughs> I did eventually, a few years later. I'll tell you about that later. When I moved on, there's, there's a certain department you go to where they give you money to go to Savile Row and get a suit made. But initially I was on response team, just answering the local 909 calls. And we were basically like a glorified doorman team because we had a thousand pubs and clubs in our area and it's the West End. So daytimes it was just shoplifting, robberies, people getting run over by buses, Nighttime war zone, um, just stabbings, shootings, gang meet up fights, nightclubs. It was, oh, I loved it. I mean, I was young. I, I thought it was great, you know, just get a blue light around and have fights and, and go to the next one. You know, it's, you know, when you're young, you're invincible, aren't you? And it's, and at the same time, you know, you get to help a few people along the way. Uh, so I did that for a few years, but I noticed that a lot of people become stale. And they, there was a lot of guys, old guys, who were due to retire, and they had worked there their entire career. And I thought, okay, it's their choice, but I, I'm not travelling to London from Portsmouth all the time because I was commuting every day. 
I'm not going to. Tr- the reason I went to the Met Police in London is because there's more opportunities to do, you know, more more departments, more things to do, more 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 experience to have, more skills to gain. So I thought, well, I'm not going to sit around here. And I wanted to get courses. You know, you don't just get everything given, like your advanced driving, your skills, and other bits and bobs. And and it's become evident that there would be internal within the police job adverts for different departments going different places and I noticed that not only when you apply for any role in the police you've got to evidence certain criteria multiple times and give examples that they can check on the things that you've experienced as a police officer you know how how you dealt with a certain incident or if you planned anything or 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 changed anything you know all all the what you'd imagine it to be but also some jobs would say essential skills required and they'd have a list and staying at a police station you could take 10 years or so to get those skills because courses have to be paid for and there's a list first come first serve and then you know so I thought it's better better for me to move on and then get these things so I I applied for the traffic department because at the time I wanted to get my driving skills top notch you know, wherever you go with the, if you're an advanced driver, you not only get you get the best cars and the fastest cars, but you're guaranteed to be in a car, and you won't be, um, you know, you'll be able to just respond to more calls um, and get more involved with everything. I went to traffic. Yeah, I did. I did my courses. I ended up going to King's Cross at the time. Uh, it was a traffic garage uh, mixed with the mounted branch. So I had a nice little office with a window that opened up to the stables, so you could smell shit all day excuse my language, and whenever the guy came to sue them, our room would fill with burnt hair. <laughs> but it was it was still, but at the same time, it was quite nice, the fact that we were there with the horses, you know? Yeah, that's a bit like Knightsbridge Barracks. I, I did some time down at Knightsbridge, and, and, and that place is horrible. It just stinks of, yeah, <laughs> especially when it's shooing. Yeah, that's that smell, isn't it? It's a burning hair. It's, it's... Mind you, we had the same in Wellington Barracks in my last few years there. They used to bring King's Troop in for, for the troop and uh, when they're firing salutes uh, and, and they would be in for a few weeks and make the place stink. That's horses for you. Yeah, but they're brilliant though. I, I, I love the police horses. I absolutely love them. They are just lovely creatures, I think. I love horses. But, um, and the people were nice. It was very, it was very, it was very, it was a totally different experience to being on a response team where you were a slave to the radio, you know. A call could come in. And you, you have to do it. You have to go. You, you don't get time to do anything other than just react, 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 you know. So you just sat down for your lunch or something like that. And all of a sudden it goes and you've got to leave your lunch. And then you spend the rest of the day starving. Yep, all the time. Yeah. Well, in the police, you're not entitled to a lunch break. It's a privilege. So you're not paid a lunch break. So if you, you, you know, they call it refs or refreshments. So if you get a, um, if you, if you're like, I don't know, you, your sergeant or the inspector would say, to, like, Bill, today your refs are at 11. That means for between 11 and 11.45, you need to try and get something to eat and drink or sit down. But if there's no one available and a call comes out, tough, you go. So often you would find, and that's that's the thing about being in the police, is that, you you know, the, the fitness level isn't that high. They never used to, they do now. For a long time, they didn't have an annual fitness test. So guys would just be eating rubbish, not proper meals, not at proper times, working shifts, there was never really time to go to a gym. They closed all the gyms at the police stations. So when you did have a time out, finish your shift or before your shift, you couldn't even go to the gym. Um, you eat, and I used to put on night duty, I was forever driving the van, the cage van. So I would basically be blue lighting it from call to call, picking up prisoners who are kicking off 
um, were being restrained. So I would put in the transit van a giant bag of, of Haribos <laughs> and a bottle of water, and I used to just drive from court just to eat Haribos just for energy, just to stay awake properly, because I, there was no way on earth I was getting anything to eat. So I went to traffic. Traffic was really good. I did my advanced driving courses, fast road training, and we did, basically I covered all of west of London, like from down the middle. To, to Obviously we could go over to the right, but then another garage covered that. So I predominantly was doing like the road accidents on the um, M40 or M25 or within London itself, because obviously people still get run over by buses because a lot of tourists look the wrong way when they cross the road. So that was, wasn't a very nice few years because I saw a lot of, a lot of fatal accidents involving children. Um, my, at the time, my oldest daughter was only very young and it's, it started to bother me a little bit because I would go to, there's, you know, there's one in particular that I went to and it was, it was absolutely awful. And when I got home, I wanted to go and see my little girl who was, it was like nighttime by then. And I went into her room and she was in bed asleep. Look, only she's only one years old and she looked identical to the baby that I'd been with all day. And I just thought, no, I can't do this anymore. It's too much too often. So after if... I don't know whether the police offer trim courses, trauma incident management, after you've been involved in some sort of incident like that. I know uh, the Royal Marines have been doing it for years, and the Army took it on during the Afghan campaign. I don't know whether the police have picked up on it yet or not. Um, Do they give you any counselling for, for that sort of thing? Yes and no. Back then... It was, uh, you pulled aside in the corridor going, you're all right, aren't you? And obviously, being a young man, you're going to go, yeah, yeah, of course I am. Yeah, fine, of course, it's part of my job. And you just brush it off. And and at the times, back then, I mean, obviously, I didn't realise it at the time, but that was around the time for me that I must have been storing these things, like these, these things in my head that bothered me. And where you think, no, no, it's, it's part of my job, it's not nice, someone's got to see it. You know, I did what I could, but it's there in the back of your brain and it, it does come up later in life, as you know. And um, so, no, it was very lip service at the time. And throughout my career, it's been mental health and counselling's come up more. But I did have, I mean, there's, obviously we'll get to it later, but it seems very untrusting. The police police officers untru- are very untrusting of internal counselling because the people are employed to be counsellors on behalf of the police. But then, for me personally, I thought sometimes if I'm if I'm too honest with them, then that will restrict me in my career. So you kind of you hold back a little bit, you know. Yeah, they instil that um, the mistrust, the fear of being weak if if you're seen to be um, having issues, uh, and and you think if you saw a man up to it. Or, or you own up to it, then then you'll be held back in your career. Which nowadays it just isn't the case. I mean, the mental health issues nowadays in the military has gone, and they and certainly I did an awful lot of training in the trim process, teaching guys how to do trim because I'd gone off and done the courses, just trying to get rid of that bigotry. For want another word. Because I, I think now, in hindsight, now, now you, you experience these things and it becomes more aware and knowledgeable that, in fact, if you actually get help and go through these processes, you actually you should, in theory, come out of it stronger and therefore makes you more valuable moving forward to, to deal with other things. 
Absolutely. You're actually back. Obviously, it's. I don't want to like. I'm not trying to slate the police at all, but it's 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 times. And back in the early two thousands, those were the times. It was around the you know I joined around the time where it started to really become hot on everything's done by you know, done by the book. It probably always has been, but it's very 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 not lefty. But do you know what I mean? It's it, that change over to political correctness was really coming in. Yeah, gone too regimented. Yeah, it became. T- it's. I mean, it's. It's good to a point, um, but it became a point in the police. I thought that, you know, anybody would, if you said anything to anybody, like, in in any way, you know, I get it. If you're doing something wrong, then you report them because it shouldn't be. There should not be bad police officers. It's wrong. It's not fair. And it's hypocritical. But if you were like had a concern or you felt unwell, other people would use that to report you and then when they apply for a job or try and get promotion they would go I did this and it become very mis- I, I a lot of people found it's very mistrusting that you would have you can't even talk to your mate about how you're feeling in case they say it and then refer use it for their own progression later to say look what I did I was a good boy I I spoke up do you know what I mean it's um so it's, it's you, you have to learn who to trust you have to have like there's yeah Absolutely. You know, I've got lots of friends in the police, but actual real friends in the police in my career, probably about 10 that I would actually trust. And I do talk to privately often, you know, like like you and I are friends. We would tell each other the truth about how you feel, what happens. But, you know, and you know they won't judge you and they understand and they wouldn't just try and get you in trouble for something you know so so anyway I did, so after the traffic I decided that even back then I thought I know I it's part it's my job I knew I would see it all and do it all but I didn't think it'd be that much that often it was it was becoming daily fatal crash fatal crash fatal crash and and it, it does get to you after a while and I thought you know what I've done this now I've done my time here um because when you go somewhere if you get a course they give a tenure because the course has got a lot costs a lot of money they want to keep you, so you can't just leave. So I did my time, and I decided I might go back to normal yeah. policing because I've got all these driving courses and whatever, and other experience. I go back, do some normal policing for a bit, get back to normal, um, and thinking, well, I'm still going to come across suicides and sudden deaths and stabbings and shootings and that kind of thing, but it's not as frequent as the traumatic car crash pile-ups all the time so i actually put a request in to go to response team and by some bizarre reason i was reposted back at my old station but on a different team um so that was nice in a way because i kind of knew where i was going and it was comfortable and i i did that for a few years i did a course to become a tutor so i was a constable tutor so whenever new guys would come they would be paired with me or girls obviously and i would just mentor them I did that, so I'm still qualified in that as, as such because your classes are, you know, back then I'd only been in five years and I was like a senior constable because uh, so many people have retired. You know, the young ones were ruled, were teaching the new guys and it's that's got worse over the time. But what I forgot to mention, because <laughs> I was listing my career, is that before I went to traffic, I actually injured my back in in 2003, which is how me and you met. <laughs> the back injury was a years later. It was December the 23rd. And I even admit it was a quarter to 11 at night. And I remember because it was the most painful moment ever 
and it's the catalyst of how my life's gone since then. As I said, I was, tw you know, joined the police when I was 20. I was 23 by this time. Still thinking I was Superman, invincible, not scared of anything. I was on foot patrol. I think I was late for work that day, so they put me walking. That would that would happen. You'd have to if you're late for work, you buy donuts and you're out walking on your own. Fair enough. <laughs> so I don't care. Walking on your own's easy. You just get rest someone you're back in. I got sent to a nightclub, <laughs> some fraudulent card. I remember it was. So I went into this nightclub. It was absolutely heaving. It was obviously just before Christmas, and this particular it was the Cafe Royal in Roy Regent Street, and there was a the end of that Eid. Yeah. Um, where all the Muslims uh, go out for a big feast near Christmas. Yeah, they, they, it's like the end of their Eid, yeah, and then they, they celebrate the end of it. So they, it, that kind of coincides with Christmas a little bit. But this, I didn't realise at the time that this venue, the promoter had sold a 1,000 tickets and it only holds 500 people. And within that religion, there's two different types. I can't remember, is it Sunni, Shiite? Yeah. A bit like we've got Protestant Catholics. Yeah, Sunni and Shia, two different factions. They don't particularly like each other. And they're always going to be at each other's throats. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't even... I was just told, go to a nightclub, there's a guy using a fake card. Bother me. I thought this would be nice to, you know, go in, arrest someone back in the station, I'm in the warm, do some paperwork, you know, just run-of-the-mill job. Very common in London for people who use stolen cards in a bar. So I went into the nightclub, saw the massive queue outside. I thought, oh, God, you know, it's a bit... A bit you, know, you could see people getting annoyed, but who cares? I'm not here for that. Went into the club. I'm at the bar. The manager's telling me there's the guy over there and there's a doorman. And I was just about to arrest someone and, a, and someone threw a glass and hit me in the face. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. Like, thinking for a second it was thrown at me. And when I turn, I realised the whole place was just kicking off. It weren't thrown at me. I just happened to get hit by a glass. It was just chaos. It just, it was just, people were smashing each other around. It was, the whole place went crazy. And, um, my radio signal had nothing inside because we had the old uh, radios that used to go over your shoulder, on the, like you see on the bill. You know, the, we had the massive thing on your belt, like the battery weighed a ton, and you had this brooch over your shoulder, and it, you, you never got signal. You could stand next to the satellite and you wouldn't have signal. But um, So I had to run outside. So, I mean, the credit card guy, pff, forget him. This is, this is people, people are getting glassed and stabbed and there's blood everywhere. So I, sh I told the manager, turn the music off, <laughs> starters, and I ran out, I called for urgent assistance, but as I got outside, it was kicking off in the queue, like big time, in the street, people hitting each other with belts and traffic cones, and I thought, Jesus Christ, I'm the only person here. So I called for urgent assistance on my radio, and I ran back inside, because that's where I was dealing with, I can't be doing with the street thing. A few minutes later, I had to put it back up. We basically got all the door stuff. We, we closed the nightclub like straight away, and I said, everyone out. Out, out type thing the guy who was going to arrest disappeared fair enough lucky for him it now went out to the street so now we had the thousand people in the street and half and half were hating each other and it just continued in the street we had we ended up having to call commissioners reserve which is like standby riot officers throughout london who all came into central london with the helicopters the dogs the horses i mean at the time i was thinking this is awesome <laughs> This is why, you know, this is why I'm here. You know, this is, and it was great. You know, we was doing the public order thing. And, and then we, was, we, you know, you form, obviously, once enough of you get there and the supervisors and the commanders turn up and they start taking control of us as a public order tactic, you know, as serials to deal with these things rather than the sporadic random police officer trying to yeah. defend himself until backup comes. We kind of started for... We're the same as the military do. Yeah. When, when, once we got 
enough of us and there were supervisors like say and they started giving out orders and like you 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 make a line you you know this kind of foot cordon and this kind of and we had like our rows to deal with it we had the riot police turn up they did their own we call them tsg uh, territorial support groups they literally do public order that's all they do i remember the helicopters because they were like beaming the lights down because it was it was absolutely crazy and i remember a dog i remember a, a police dog ran out to the crowd to bite or bark at some people who are kicking the crap out of some guy on the floor. We were told to hold our line. So we were holding our line and just batting people away. And this this person booted the police dog and it really yelped. It kicked him right in the ribs, you know. And the dog like yelped and, and ran away. But the dog handler saw Red. He pushed past me, ran into the crowd to um, to grab the guy who just hurt his dog. And I remember in that scuffle, a drunk person walked past. It was like... A random, his head in London just happened to walk around the corner and there's a big kickoff. And he's walking throughout it all. And I saw that in this massive scuffle, because I was still holding my line, because that's what I was told to do. He got knocked over. And now people, people are fighting and he's laying on the floor getting trampled on. So he started biting ankles. So I, I left the line. So I thought, this guy's going to die. He's going to get crushed. And I can't just stand here and watch somebody potentially innocent. Yeah, he's biting people, but... He walked into something he weren't aware of. And so I kind of stood over him. I straddled him. I stood over. And so I, so my back was shielding him from everybody. I was getting hit in the back and all sorts. But I'd, he was going to get trod on, you know, and crushed. And I bent over and I grabbed his collar. And I, mate, get up. You're going to die. And with that, he spat in my face. And he had blood in his mouth. And I saw red, thinking, right, that's it. You're under arrest. And I grabbed him. And without thinking, without heat of the moment, I picked him up. And as I picked him up, I held, literally all I did was held his, his, his the scruff of his jacket and I just lifted him from, I was standing up and he was laying flat. And as I lifted him, I always remember this massive like ping vibration through my back, right from the bottom, right up to my head. And it was sickening that the feeling that went through my body was just like, I wanted to throw up. It was that painful and like a massive pop you know you could hear it internally and as I kind of got him up I threw him and he hit the window of Virgin Megastore and it smashed and the alarm went off and it was in that moment you know when people go it was at that point he knew he fucked up <laughs> <laughs> it was it was that moment for me and I was like oh and I just had the, my baton in my hands and I just stood there like bent over in pain and luckily he ran away didn't come back to hit me because I wouldn't have been able to. And then I remember just being grabbed from behind by some riot guys and they pulled me behind the line and made me lay on the floor. Um, my back was absolutely buggered and I laid there for about two hours while this is all happening. Then we all had to go for a big debrief and I said to my supervisor, like, he's like, what's up with you? And I was like, I can't walk. I was in agony. And um, he went, oh, well, we're going home in a bit. We're back in tonight we'll do your injury on duty when you come in. And I was just like, yeah, whatever, can I go home? So I got on the train, got back to Portsmouth. It was the worst journey of my life. Went into the doctors and I was like, help. <laughs> and they gave me like mega painkillers. I was off work for a few months. Um, and long story short, I prolapsed my disc, the L5S1. And um, they said to me, the physio, they referred me to physios. and went, oh, you're young. It will pop back in. It will heal itself, yada, yada, yada. Um, I had physio, painkillers, and after a few months, it kind of did feel like the pinch had gone a bit, you know, but it was more like a niggle. But I just believe that, yeah, you're young, it will fix itself. So for the next 12 years, 
I kind of just ignored the fact that I had this niggle. I'd had, sometimes have a couple of days off here and there, or painkillers, get sciatica a lot. But I thought then, again, a bit like the mental health thing, if I say to them, my back's really bad and it's never getting better, it's not getting better, that would restrict me again from applying for other jobs because they look at your sick record, they look at your injuries, your physical, you've got to pass medicals. Um, so being young, I just thought, you know what? It'll be fine. I'll, I'll just grip my teeth and go through it. It's just it's only pain. I'd rather do what I want to do rather than give in to pain as much as I can. You know, if you can if you can get through it and hide it and live around it, then I will. So, but yeah, but so by the time that settled and whatever, that's when I went to traffic. <sighs> so, <laughs> so back to response team after traffic. Did that for a few years. I then thought, right, I need to move on again. I need my next skills, and I always wanted to do firearms. The armed response weren't recruiting at the time, normal royalty protection, but diplomatic protection were recruiting. So I applied for a diplomatic protection group, which was called the DPG back then. Now it's called Palaces and Diplomatic Protection. They keep changing their names. I think they change names every now and then, so somebody gets promotion to say, look what I did. You know, that kind of rebranding. Thumbs up, well done you. Yeah, that somebody's no good at the job, so they promote them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, just just ran seen it. Randomly rename something or change something that's not broken to say that they've done it and then get a big pat on the back and promoted. But so yeah, it was DPG back then. Primarily your your job was to protect the government or diplomats or embassies. So I did I did my um firearms training, my um AFO course, which is authorized firearms officer. That was nine weeks, I think. That was hard. That was a Gravesend specialist training center it was it was a mixture of range work learning the weapons and a lot of tactics so there's there's a model village like not model village like full size it's like a film set real buildings real roads you could drive in it and you had the instructors would be like role play people all the time and you it would be like its own little town so you would practice the tactics of different incidents and firearms incidents and everything and then eventually on the last three days it's an assessment continuous and if you pass you get your little blue card and your warrant card and it means you're a firearms officer and then you go on to your department wherever you've joined so everybody gets trained by the same people so it's um so19 or co19 they change their name often as well but basically seo19 are the department that train you so everyone goes through them first so it's the standard you know level of training did that i actually got i i I half failed the assessment i had to do another week (laughs) that's how i ended up doing 10 weeks which they could have failed me and binned me but they didn't they said i had red mist which is obviously the um lost my temper yeah which i kind of did doing something more dangerous than you did your backing well it was more in that case it was my it was off we had been three days continuous of assessment and it's, it's and it's siege after siege after this this and that and it's really tiring and you've got to be on the ball all the time and you've got these assessors walking around in high-vis jackets who aren't there. You imagine they're not there and it's, you're getting shot at. You know, the scenario keeps changing. The information you're given on the incident is wrong all the time. It's it's really keeping you on your toes and working as a team, you know, to contain the, you know, and deal with the incidents. And um, this 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 last, this last um, thing happened where... The scenario had got to the point where I was about to, trying to pull over a car because obviously it's you drive around it's 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 bizarre and it's um 
the guy got out the car and started shooting at us. And obviously, he ran into a building. It became a siege. And as I got out of my car, I was being shot at. I, I, I fell over and I got up and shot back and ran. I took cover of the car and then your brain thinks we're not supposed to. You see in the films, police hide behind the cars, don't they? Well, that's a bad tactic. You're not supposed to hide. As a, you, you can take it as cover, but if it's a, if you're in a containment, you don't yeah. use the car as cover because it's a target. It's quite clearly... Well, bullets do tend to go through cars. Yeah. I mean, the engine block's all right, but, but the fact it's a police car, yeah. it's a target. So you're <laughs> supposed to get away from the car and take real hard cover you know, cover from fire and view. So I, I went into cover and as I got into cover, I, I became, there was a guy on the corner. So you, you rotate, you become number one or number two, depending on how, who you are in a particular cover point. Um, so I got to his back and I was like, oh, you know, thanks mate, covered me. And so right, I'm your support. And as I tapped him on the shoulder, we had a conversation about, because you're supposed to continuously talk about what we'll do if this happens in a minute. Like, what's the plan going to be? If what if the guy walks towards us now, type thing. So I so I said, well, I'll have I'll, I'll have non-lethal ready because you have to always have the option of non-lethal. You don't just want to kill everybody. I went to get my taser out to say, well, I'm behind you with a taser because he's got firearms cover on us. If he comes out and surrenders, we can maybe get him around the corner and taser him rather than shoot him because that's and that's all things and you can hear you can see the instructors and they're like taking notes behind you and you know because it's all part of the process because you are supposed to just arrest them you're not supposed to just kill them you know that's a last resort so you have to talk about everything and the tactics you have to keep going through the threat assessment you know cycle you know and your tactical options anyway at that point i went to grab my taser and I, oh it's not there and i looked and i thought oh shit and it's on the floor by the car in the middle of the open road where it was all getting shot at, so it was completely out exposed, was my taser on the floor. It fell out of my clip on my body armour when I fell out of the car. And I thought, oh, no. And um, with that, I also remembered that I've left the key in the car. And I thought, oh, shit. Because you're not supposed to... You know, just one of those little things. And I thought, it'll be all right because <laughs> it'll be fine. And just carry on. But an instructor must have heard me say that to him. I whispered in his ear, mate, I've dropped the taser on the floor and the keys are in the car. And he, oh shit, don't worry about it. We'll have to call someone else to come and give us a taser if we need one. Do you know what I mean? Because you run around the containment together to keep backing each other up when needed. Anyway, the instructor, bear in mind they're not supposed to be there. He walked up to the car, picked up the keys, picked up the taser and walked into the building where the suspect was. And then and then on the radios you hear the suspects going, oh, we've got a police radio. Ha uh-huh, ha, we can hear you because they'd obviously given them a radio as well. And then it was, oh, and we've got keys to a car and a taser. So we were like, ah, oh, and that was it. My, my, you know, when you're tired and you're doing your best and your, your just motivation just goes, Bruh. and I thought, oh, bloody hell, that's, and I was thinking that's really out of order because that wouldn't have happened because they've took it to them. So now when he comes out, we're going to have to deal with someone trying to drive away in a car and he's got our taser. So I was mega demotivated big time. From that point onwards, we were there for two and a half hours. Nothing was happening. Two and a half hours, and we kept swapping positions. And then the instructor came along and tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're now number one. So I had to swap places with this guy in this particular containment point. I thought, okay. And with that, the suspect walks out. And he goes, I surrender, I surrender. Arrest me. And he laid on the floor, right in the open. And I was like, no, you need to get up, come around the corner. Because obviously you're not supposed to break cover to arrest someone. You have to get them in cover first. It could be a trap. could be a trap, couldn't it? Or they could shoot you or whatever. You don't know how many people are in the building yet. We've not cleared the building. For an hour, and it was an hour because I have a watch on my wrist so I could see it. 
and whole hour of him just laying on the floor going, no, 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 just arrest me, I'll quit. How many times have I told you? And he threw my taser at me. He threw his guns towards me. He chucked the car key away and he just laid there and laid there. And I said everything in the rule books. I said every tactic. I even described what could happen because the instructors just stood right there. I could see them with their clipboards. And I waited and I waited. And on the point of an hour, I thought, I've done absolutely everything other than just grabbing him and dragging him around the corner. And I thought, and it's getting dark. We're supposed to finish by now. It's like the end of the day. You know, it's like we'd been doing this for hours and on an end now. Everybody was shattered. I'd said and done everything. And I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I want to go home. And I just went, and I literally went, fuck it. And I dropped my MP5 on the, on the sling and I reached forward and grabbed. As I grabbed him to put it, it went, index. And I was like, you get. So they were waiting and waiting and waiting. And then when it came to me finding out if I'd passed the course or not, apparently the head instructor was there telling the instructors to not index it, despite the fact I'd said everything right and I'd said, I'm not going to come and break cover. You'll just have to lay there in the cold. He said, keep him doing it till he fails. So the instructors were like, you failed, but we're going to have you back. We've argued it and you need to come back and yeah. do your, your, your three-day assessments again. Sneaky bugger like that. If your face doesn't fit, obviously... You wound him up somewhere along the course. Yeah, I must have done. I think it's because I dropped the taser and he didn't like it. No. My, it we have the, our, our equipment isn't always the best. And the little poppers, they pop open yeah. and you fall over, you're getting shot at. That could happen in real life. It's not. Absolutely. It's not like I miss weapon handling was bad. So Yeah, so I blame all that on procurement. Yeah, exactly. The, when, the army have suffered the same thing. Yeah. We, they always go for the cheapest option. Yeah. And, and it's never always the good option. Yeah, and bear in mind, the bits they'd give us at the time had been used 100 times in training by other people. So it, the popper had worn away quite a lot, you know. Sometimes it's Velcro as well, and that gets wet and doesn't last. So anyway, I did my second week, and the instructors were like, you, obviously now I've got an integrate with another course <laughs> who have been together for nine weeks, all knew each other, and they said to me, just crack on, just do your best, you'll be fine. We're really sorry, we argued your case. As far as we're concerned, you passed, but he happened to turn up that day and some superintendent guy and, you know, the head instructor. But I thought, whatever, and I just thought, fine, at least it didn't bin me. So I got to the final assessments again, and on the halfway through this last day, a chief inspector walked up to me and went, Bill, you can just go and sit out if you want, you've passed, mate. And I just thought at the time, it's a trick. <laughs> so I was like, no, sir, I'm not abandoning my team. And um, he went, well, you honestly, he goes, it's not a trick. I mean it. You really can sit out of it. And I said, okay, fine. Well, I'm not going to. I'm going to support my team. And I did. And every time a suspect came towards me, you could tell in his earpiece he was told to go somewhere else because they had done with me. I'd already passed. So it was a bit of a farce, but I like to think that the instructors saw that I didn't give up on my teammates, you know, because... I was still helping them. They were still under their assessment and part of me did think it was another trick. So the training was was particularly hard, I thought, but really, really good because you come out of it and um, you know what you're doing. You know, you'd be on a, you'd be doing some scenario and you'd be in a really stressful situation, put you in a stressful situation and you forget it's role play sometimes. It actually feels really intense and they would whisper in your ear and go, what's the uh, definition of Section 3 of the Criminal Law Act? And you go, what? And as you go, uh, and look around, so you get shot at and then <laughs> shouted at for why are you look not looking the threats that way. And you have to learn to answer people without looking at them. And also you have to learn these laws word by word 
in a stressful situation. And afterwards they say it's because if you shoot someone and kill them and you're in court and you've got some top barrister trying to shred your credibility away and you can't even tell them what the definition of a law is that you've used to use force, then you're going you're gonna to be in trouble. So you leave there like this font of knowledge of legislation and tactics and it's really good. So then I had to wait for my posting to DPG after qualifying. That's brilliant so far, Bill. I think what we'll do, we'll stop it there because we've still got another about 40 minutes to go. So we'll do that in the next episode. So for now, thanks, Bill. Thank you for listening. <laughs>